think the thing about great leaders that I would observe is they're exactly as you said, Craig, you know, they're so hungry for new knowledge, different perspectives, um, to be challenged on their view of the world or to seek insight on something that they may not have even thought about yet. Um, and the leaders more often than not are prepared to and find great benefit in surrounding themselves with a real diversity of people. So you don't need to be on their level. You don't need to be, you know, someone that looks like the people they spend a lot of time with already, because actually the benefit is that you're exactly the opposite of that. You're coming from a different perspective, maybe a different stage of life, different socioeconomic background, gender, whatever. Um, and there's richness to be found in having a conversation. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a highly articulate, pragmatic, futuristic, energetic, and curious young leader. She is thought leader who thrives on challenging the way people think, facing market disruptions head on, unlocking opportunities, and helping leaders build their capacity to affect change. A high achiever and born leader, she has new, held numerous sport captain and leadership roles while at Methodist Ladies College. She holds a law degree and a BA economics from the University of Western Australia. However, she will quite openly state that she didn't quite fit in at university. As a teenager, she thrived as an events manager at Challenge Stadium in Perth before becoming a paralegal at Francis Burt Legal Chambers. Her talent was recognized early by Rio Tinto CEO Sam Walsh, which paved the way for former Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott to appoint her as the 2014 G20 Youth Summit Chair. She was Chief of Staff to the NAB Wealth Chief Executive before taking on her current role as CEO and founder of Emergent in 2015. As a Director, Chair and Advisor Remember, she currently sits on the boards of Hudson, Hub Australia, Cox Architecture, United Nations Global Coalition of Young Women Entrepreneurs, Victoria Police, the Princess Charities Australia, Port Adelaide Football Club, Black Sheep Capital, and was the youngest ever president of a Rotary Club. In her spare time, when she has it, she loves to stay fit, compete in Ironman distance triathlons, speak all around the world and moderate conversations with world leaders such as Barack Obama, Sir Richard Branson, and the Dalai Lama. I'm excited to introduce you to a phenomenal high achiever who loves to comment on intergenerational economic and social issues, Holly Ransom. Holly, welcome to the show. Craig, thank you for a very generous introduction. It's a pleasure to be on the program. Yeah, you know, I love it. You know, what a way to dive in headfirst into your career at such a young age. You you were born asking why. What Absolutely. Is it, what is it about questions that drive you like a forensic scientist? So I think um, I'm often described as being forensically curious by uh, my mentors. And I think that comes from a really young age. I was one of those people that 
um, was just born asking questions about the world around me. And I think from a very young age probably was was dissatisfied by a lot of the answers that I'd get back. I think the, probably the most pivotal moment in terms of driving that, that question asking happened when I was 10 years old. And I was shopping at a bookstore with my mum and I got really bored waiting for her to find a novel. And so I wandered out into the street and there was this guy sitting on the footpath with his hat upturned that was begging for money. And the, being the shrinking violet that I am, I sort of wandered over to him and said, what you doing? And this guy looked up at me with a very bemused grin and said, I'm trying to earn enough to get a feed and a roof. I looked down and counted what he'd collected and there was $4.20 in his hat. And I never should have said it, but 10-year-old me sort of went, well, that's not very much. And he chuckled and he said, no, this is a good day. I'm doing really well. And I had about two nanoseconds to take that in before I felt a yank from behind and my mother dragged me away and gave me a medal-worthy Stranger Danger lecture. But that night as I lay in bed, I remember it vividly, it was the middle of winter, it was bucketing with rain, and all I could think about was how come by lottery of birth I've got a roof over my head, I'm lucky enough to have food in my stomach, and the guy that I met on the side of the street isn't. And I was, I felt very empowered by a phrase my grandmother had always said to me. My grandmother is a remarkable woman. She's 89 years old this year, and if I, I can be a fraction of the woman she is, I'll be pretty ecstatic. But from a very young age, she would say to me all the time, whether it was rubbish on the side of the street she was talking about or someone treating someone disrespectfully, she would always step in and role model what it meant to fix that situation or make a contribution for the better. And when she did that, she would always turn to me and say, Holly, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. And I'd never realised till much later in life what an empowering phrase that was to get gifted with. But I think uh, what that told me as a young kid is I didn't need to know the answers. I just needed to be prepared to dig my heels in enough to go ask the questions. And so I think that that curiosity came from seeking to understand things that I wasn't prepared to walk past. Very powerful, you know, and, and that commitment to helping community and, and change the way people think is, is pretty amazing to have that come from your grandmother and, and obviously for you now to continue on as, as you ask those curious questions. Yeah, as I said, she's definitely a source of inspiration. And I think um, I've been very intentional. Grandma catalyzed it. And I think I've, I've always sought out very curious, very open-minded mentors in my life as well. And um, they've role modeled what it's what it's like to be asking questions and challenging thinking in all sorts of different arenas, um, you know, in my life since then. So that ability to be interested rather than being interesting is a great quality you have. You know, what is your secret to getting the air of the influential? Ooh, interesting question. I love that philosophy, though. I think it is so important. Um, I think pairing that idea of seeking um, to be interested rather than interesting it, alongside that notion of seek first to understand before you seek to be understood uh, is a really powerful one. It's something I think about a lot as leaders, how easy it is for us to come in and jump to action without seeking to understand context or without appreciating nuance. Um, I've studied that quite closely in a number of the, the mentors I've sort of chosen to learn from. And, and I think that's a really important area. In terms of getting the air of, of leaders, I think quite honestly, it would surprise people um, how rarely people reach out to these people and ask for time. I mean, I make that offer. I speak all around the world on, on stages. It amazes me, um, you know, when, when you make that offer, how few people will often reach out and take you up on it. So I think people think there's all these barriers to begin with. It would surprise you how few people actually follow through and make the ask. And then I think when they do that, it would surprise you how many people give you a really good reason why. I mean, we talked about why already at the start of this conversation. 
um, that for me is really important. Um, people's most precious asset is their time. I'm deeply respectful of it. There are still so many leaders that I would love to meet, but I don't have good enough questions for them. And I will not reach out and ask for their time until I do. Um, and I think in those moments where you're reaching out, be it directly or someone making an introduction for you, you've got to be able to clearly explain, you know, why it is that you're asking for time, why it is that, um, you know, you need to ask questions of them versus anyone else. And I think people have always got a preparedness to make the time. Sometimes it takes a long time to get that time. I mean, a year and a half to two years is sometimes how long you can spend trying to coordinate diaries with some of these people. Um, but if, you know, if you're consistent uh, in, in ter- and, and polite, I think, in terms of the, the way that you engage and seek to do that, um, more often than not, people make time for people that they believe will pay it forward so that when someone comes to them in a few years' time and asks a similar question of, hey, any chance I could sit down and pick your brains about this, I think people want to know that that's a person who's going to pay forward the time that they invested in them. They're just human beings. and Oh, totally. And I know, you know, from my background as well that, when, when you teach people, so when people ask a question, you teach people, you actually learn a lot more at the same time. So I can understand why they're so happy to help people like yourself who have a growth growth mindset because that's what, you know, they just want to continue learning. That's why they're so successful. Completely agree. And that is one of the, the traits. It took me a while to understand that, particularly as a teenager. You know, um, wow, I can't believe all these people are saying yes to making time and uh, you know i think that's the barrier that stops a lot of people from reaching out they go oh geez but this person is you know just at such a different stage of their career to me or um you know how could i impose on their time when i've got nothing to offer and i think the thing about great leaders that i would observe is they're exactly as you said craig you know they're so hungry for new knowledge different perspectives um to be challenged on their view of the world or to seek insight on something that they may not have even thought about yet. Um, and the leaders more often than not are prepared to, and find great benefit in surrounding themselves with a real diversity of people. So you don't need to be on their level. You don't need to be, you know, someone that looks like the people they spend a lot of time with already, because actually the benefit is that you're exactly the opposite of that. You're coming from a different perspective, maybe a different stage of life, different socioeconomic background, gender, whatever. Um, and there's richness to be found in having a conversation. So you must have, you know, obviously you're very confident and you show quite a real calmness when you're interviewing. You know, when you first started talking to the likes of Sir Richard Branson or former USA President Barack Obama, were you quite nervous or did you feel quite relaxed because you knew what questions you were going to ask so you were comfortable in your approach? It's a good question. I think... It's probably a little bit of both. I am by nature probably a, um, a, a well, I'm a more confident person, I would say, but you, you work at being confident. I mean, part of why I'm confident is because, you know, that by the time I'd interviewed um, Richard or had the opportunity to interview Brock, I, I had done thousands of interviews. I'd spent thousands of hours in front of audiences practicing and practicing, never knowing it would be for a moment like that, never knowing, in a, I guess, in an athletic context, I would need to perform in that sort of arena, um, but very much putting in, uh, to quote Gladwell, the 10,000 hours to try and move towards mastery. Now, I'm a long way off where I'd like to be with that skill set. I hope when we have a conversation in 10 years' time, it'll be, um, you know, I'll be talking about and uh, a whole other level of skill that I've developed through even greater learning, even greater challenge. There's definitely moments of butterflies that come. I think one of my idiosyncrasies is probably um, being a kinesthetic learner. 
I learn by doing. So if, uh, if the context is similar to something I've done before, I feel very um, calm about it. And so I, I feel particularly probably with Barack, I had the benefit of having interviewed Richard a couple of times. Um, which was certainly a big level up when it happened. Uh, getting to run Virgin Disruptors for Richard in London and, and work with him a couple of times now was such a distinct privilege and he is truly incredible. And he also has the great um, disposition of making people feel very comfortable around him. Um, so that that helps enormously. Um, but I think uh, once I've kind of done done a sort of interview of that scale with that sort of audience dynamic, it makes me feel calm and it makes me understand and sit into what my role in the conversation is. I mean, the great joy when you're working with extraordinary minds and talent and capability like Richard Branson and Barack Obama is um, <laughs> such a gift um, in, in terms of the, the quality of the conversation that these questions can deliver on. It's almost the challenge of, oh, my gosh, how do I prioritise exactly what to ask? Because there are so many dimensions that this conversation could go into. Uh, so I, I probably am um, relatively confident, but I also think that's part. And again, I know I'm talking to a lot of people that are interested in in sport and athletics um, that are uh, listeners of your podcast. A lot of that is about how your pregame routine works too. You know, what are you doing before you get out there to get yourself in the right state to use and harness that energetic or excited energy, whatever way you want to frame it, for your benefit. Um, you know, what is kind of the self-talk, what is the, the breathing routine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what is the, the music you're listening to, everything that can help put you in peak state to deliver on um, what it is that your role needs to be in a particular situation. It's, it's similar right across, you know, all different areas, you know, whether it be art or music or being a leader or playing sport, as you say, it's about how you prepare and how you plan yep. so that you're in the right frame of mind and you've got that peak performance when you're delivering it um on the day so well done because they seem to have a real respect and admiration for you which uh, obviously says a lot about your your incredible insights and the way you interact with people and the view that you have on the world well thank you it's very kind um i, I feel very blessed to have had those opportunities honestly to two remarkable moments, two remarkable leaders, um, both in their own right in very different ways. And I've learned enormously from my interactions with both of them. And um, it, it's challenged me to think differently about my own career and some of the things I'm doing in the world as well for the better. So it's been great. And it's interesting you say that comment about, you know, sort of business and, and sport and the parallels because Stephen Moore, the, the former captain of the Wallabies, was sort of the first person to challenge me on that thinking. We sort of mentored each other a few years ago um, when he came into captaincy at the Wallabies. And um, one of the things he would talk to me a lot about is sort of his disbelief at the way that the business world failed to consider themselves as leaders as, as equivalents of high-performing athletes. He said, you know, as athletes, we, we are so conscious of uh, fueling our body right. We're so conscious of getting the right amount of sleep. We're so conscious of making sure that we have productive downtime. Um, he said, I can't understand why CEOs of businesses aren't framing uh, their, their own challenges, their own working world is as similar to elite athletes. You have to care about what you put in your body. You have to care about how well you look after it. You have huge performance demands on your shoulders. And I think my journey with triathlon, um, it's blown me away, the parallels of what I learned in that sporting pursuit and the application of that to the business, um, the business side of my life. You know, I've, I've considered this quite often because it's a lot of the stuff that, you know, we're building in the background for active CEO and, I think the one thing is when you are an athlete, you've got that physical fatigue that you can really feel yes. and your muscles are tired and you 
you can really sense that change in performance when you are at that fatigue level. When you're a leader and or a CEO, you don't quite feel it the same. So it takes a lot longer to really kick in. And a lot of the time people don't recognize it until they are sick, unwell, and, and mm. at, a, at a very deep and dark space a lot of the time as well, which is a real shame. So it's about educating those people how to prepare themselves or how to start their careers in the right frame of mind so that they can constantly have the energy they need to be an effective leader and lead their team. Yep. Completely. So moving on from that, you know, how would you describe your leadership style and how has that evolved over time? Hmm. Good question. I think, well, I like to think it's a very interactive and engaged um, leadership style. I, I really enjoy collaborating and I really enjoy being around diverse opinions and input. Um, I'm a very people oriented leader. So um, part of what I love and I think where I do my best work is in the stakeholder management and the communication and the people side, particularly of, of change projects. So I really enjoy when we get the briefs to come in and work at, uh, alongside organisations where, you know, they've got the strategy or they've got the idea or they, they've got the vision for what initiative they need to launch next. But their challenge is really on the people engagement, mobilising the team, building the capacity of the leadership group, whatever that might look like. Because um, for me, I think I take great joy in being able to empower other people to to see their role in in being the change that they want to see or being a part of the change uh, that's collectively trying to be achieved. So I think that's definitely evolved over time. I think it's probably the the more that you or the more that your leadership challenges expand. You know, I think about kind of going from leading grassroots community organisations where often you did have to shoulder a lot of the work burden yourself. Um, just by virtue of needing to get it done, you know, and anyone working in a volunteer organisation will appreciate that. It's sort of everyone all in, roll up your sleeves, um, and quite often the, the burden on the person leading the organisation is so much so, and I often joke about this in the NFP community, that they need to sort of take a year off to recover after being in the leadership position, which is very unsustainable, but often the reality. And then I think you move into roles where you're working inside large organisations and you appreciate that as one person you can never turn the Titanic. Um, let alone social issues if we're talking about the state of play on things like education or domestic violence and, um, you know, challenging systemic issues within our community right now. Um, so I think you you understand and begin to appreciate that a lot of the art of leadership comes down to the art of being able to successfully influence, to build coalitions, to successfully structure collaborations, to make people feel valued, to help them understand their role um, to be able to mentor and develop them so they can take on increased capacity and the collective um, capability, therefore, of the initiative can grow. So I think it's definitely changed with time um, by virtue of, of probably understanding and appreciating um, uh, leadership more and leadership's role within society more broadly, but also being challenged to apply my own leadership in very different contexts and bigger contexts. Um, it's definitely evolved. Yeah, okay, so how does intergenerational leadership form part of, is so important now as we mm. move into, you know, further into the 21st century? Totally. It is, and it's a really interesting one for a lot of organisations. I mean, I've been talking about this for quite a few years now, but when I was leading the Youth Summit for the G20 in 2014, it was an issue that became incredibly apparent. You know, the data that we were looking at we're talking about a generation, you know, where right now where 50% of the world's population are under the age of 30. So we've got this extraordinary demographic dividend coming into the world. 
But when I was leading the, the youth summit, you know, one of the, the issues we were looking at was this extraordinary disengagement from the education system and particularly from the world of work. You know, I had, I had colleagues in Spain that year that were dealing with 60% youth unemployment. We had every G20 country where youth unemployment was like two to three times the adult or main mainstream unemployment rate. And so we were looking at this, this generation, this extraordinary um, scale uh, of a generation that were unfortunately not being empowered with skills necessary or not engaged in the education system in a way that was going to allow them to set themselves up for a prosperous future. You know, for the first time we were talking about a generation, uh, certainly in, in Western world countries like Australia, who were likely to be worse off than their parents. We've never had that before. So that was a really interesting um, a challenge for us to be thinking through. And in the context of the world of work, you know, we've seen as of 2015, 16, depending on what kind of country you're looking at, most of the world now, the largest generation in their workforce is this millennial cohort. Um, and what we see from them is that they want to work and they want to lead differently. Now, I don't think that some of that phenomenon is unique to them. You know, we talk a lot about purpose with this generation. Now, as far as I'm concerned, we've seen purpose in a variety of iterations for generations. You know, I look at baby boomers and they sort of started the, um, the corporate social responsibility movement. X is probably the triple bottom line. You know, we've, we've seen it kind of trickling in in different ways. Um, so it's an evolution uh, of things that I think this generation were blessed to have and or to be encouraged by uh, and around by their parents, by teachers, by the, the environment that they live in. But certainly it's showing up in the workplace different. Certainly what they are looking for when it comes to top talent is different. And so for me, I see this generation as being an incredible force for change. How could you not see 50% of the world's population under 30 being an incredible moment in time opportunity to change the world for the better? But we've got challenges around the degree or how well we're doing it, preparing them for that and how effectively we're engaging them and designing uh, I guess, ways of involving them in our world of work and in our society that gives us the opportunity to harness the potential benefit that sits there. Yeah, definitely. And, and look, you know, into that intergenerational leadership too, I think, you know, for me, I, I surround myself with people that are younger, older, so I can get that wisdom versus that youth and exuberance and, and ability to challenge the status quo and look at it from a different angle. Mm, um, absolutely. And, and obviously you've been involved in boards under the age of 30 at a very very young age which is really powerful so i think that's a big shift that we're seeing in society now where we're seeing a lot more diversity in the boards and we're seeing a lot more diversity amongst the executive teams when it comes to that age so we start to understand different people's perspectives and as you say purpose i think it's great and i think we need to see more of it um i always encourage people to to, to reflect on the diversity of the five people they spend the most time around professionally and whether that is uh, whatever way that's monocultural, be that, um, be that by gender, be that by age, be that by cognitive uh, diversity, challenge yourself to think about who you can bring into that mix that can shake it up. Um, if you don't have a millennial in the group of people you spend the most time around, there's a great opportunity to start some reverse mentoring. Uh, and I, I, I see this in a lot of organisations now where they're saying from chairman down, we want you to have a mentor under the age of 30 because they're going to learn an enormous amount from your extraordinary business experience. But you'll be challenged around the way that they look at the world from a customer perspective, um, the, the frictionless digital way that they interact with the world, the new business models that they're pioneering or exploring or, or um, you know, a user base member of, for example. So I, I think that is a really, as you said, a really great place to start. It's as simple as reaching out to people 
that are in that demographic and saying, hey, I'd love to have a coffee. I'd be really interested to get your views on a couple of things we're talking about around the board table or a couple of things that we're working on this year. Um, and I think you'll be really blown away by the, the, the richness of the conversation that you can have um, purely over a cup of coffee with someone that comes from a different generation. For sure. And I know we've now got 40% of our board at Triathlon ACT that are under the age of 30, which is, you know, we love. Oh, that's great. Well done. Yeah, that's no, really, really good. So let's digress a little bit here. Recently, I was discussing fear with a good friend and they made the comment that around 80% of what we fear never happens. Do you think fear of failure or fear of reaching our ability is the greatest constraint holding people back from achieving their best? I would tend to agree with that, yes. I think in whatever way fear manifests, and obviously each of us is quite individual in that, whether it's fear of success, whether it's fear of failure, whether it's fear of not belonging, found out, whatever it might be, um, you know, fear is... Uh, an incredible chameleon in that way. And I think, unfortunately, uh, really it is the only limitation between um, us achieving our goals and dreams and aspirations is what sits between our ears in terms of the, the dialogue that we have with ourselves and the way that obviously fear can can shape that for the better or for the worse. So I think fear is incredibly significant. Um, all of us experience it. Uh, and so it's a question of how you harness it. What do you want to do when fear shows up? Um, do you let fear wash over you? Do you let yourself succumb to whatever fear is telling you is the extent of your abilities or um, is your truth or whatever it might be, or do you choose to feel it, acknowledge it and do what you were going to do anyway? Um, and, and how, like I, I talk a lot about fear because I'm, I'm fascinated by it as a, con as, as a concept. And I think we've, particularly in an age where we're dealing with things that naturally invite fear. I mean, when you think about the rapid period of change we're in, it's all about ambiguity. It's all about uncertainty. Um, this is the slowest rate of change we're ever going to see. You know, look at Moore's Law. We're not getting slower anytime soon. We're only going to quicken. And so it's really important that we as leaders are developing strategies and tools to be able to deal with that baseline level of uncertainty, if that's something that makes us fearful. That baseline level of pace, if that's what makes us fearful. Whatever way fear shows up for you, I think it's really important that we start getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and making sure that that's not going to be a, a constraint on our ability to perform moving forward. And talking about fear, you, you I think you took it, the bull by the horns, so to speak, and <laughs> you, t you took a whole year where you faced a new fear every single day. Now, that's pretty impressive. That's we did. And yeah, it's my best friend and I. <laughs> and so what did you learn? What, what were some of the, the fears that you tackled and, and what were the biggest learnings that you got out of that? Oh, so many fears. Uh, what did I do that year? I quit my job and started my own business. That was a pretty terrifying one. I took up acting and singing lessons. I bloody love speaking, but acting and singing are a whole other level of vulnerability. <laughs> uh, I did, I did stand up comedy. That was terrifying. I, what else did I do? I said no to a whole lot of things. I don't know. I would have had the courage to say no to. I was a lot more vulnerable in conversations with people that I trusted and, you know, mentors and friends than I'd probably ever been prepared to before. Uh, I said yes to things and pitched ideas that I don't think I would have had the courage to do if I hadn't been in this challenge. I signed up for my first Ironman 100 days out at a time when I couldn't have run 10 kilometres. It's very brave. <laughs> that, was, that was a big one. That was a lot of the fear factors for that year. That whole journey was crazy. And I also... I, I was a type of person at that stage of my life who would like to hold the, their cards quite close to their chest on things like that. So I went another level and made it public and raised money for charity. 
um, for Lane Beachley's Aim for the Stars Foundation running my first Ironman. So I, I totally put it on the line. This was a goal that I would quite likely fail at. And then I made it very public that I was pursuing it. So that whole experience was quite terrifying. Um, but I learned so much. Honestly, it is the single best um, challenge I've ever taken on when it comes to, to growth and learning and development. And I learned a lot through doing it with my best friends. So we had sort of this compounded learning because he was out having his own learning experiences and being challenged um, in his own way. And then we'd have these debriefs all the time around, you know, what was going on and what we'd learned and how we were finding it. But I think the biggest thing was probably um, – uh the great reward for effort that comes with taking a challenge like that on Mm. Uh, some of the things that we started in january terrified by like truly terrified by going oh my gosh if i you know (laughs) that's scary to even think about the idea of doing it let it go alone going doing it by the middle of the year and by the end of the year became things that were totally in our comfort zone and it was actually really encouraging to see that that you know if you can if you can find baby step ways of doing this you can actually build a, a tolerance it's truly like building a muscle at the gym um, and this is why I think it's so important that we go on this journey. Don't, don't if you're afraid of public speaking, decide that the way you're going to tackle that is by going and debuting in front of 500 people. Like think about the incremental ways that you can build up, like you're gradually lifting, you know, more and more weight at the gym. So you turn around at the end of six or 12 months and go, oh my gosh, look how much stronger I am. This is like something I feel totally comfortable doing now up to a threshold that I never could have conceived when I started this journey. So I think that was a really encouraging thing and I think the other thing is sort of each of us I sort of describe it as have a red line of resistance um, between sort of the where we are right now in our comfort zone and doing the things that we're afraid of and because I think you've got to acknowledge if you want to if this was easy you would have done it already you know you would have applied for that gig you would have decided that you'd go take on that challenge you would have put your hand up to say yes to this so what we've got to start appreciating I think we've desensitized to how everyday fear shows up so we've got Hollywood have kind of run away with fear and we, when we think about fear in our head, we think about jumping out the side of a plane or swimming with a shark or whatever. And that desensitizes us to the fear that actually limits us, the fear that shows up every day in life that is actually what we need to become attuned to and develop strategies around. And so I'm talking about those moments and you've got to work out what physiologically how this shows up for you. But we've all been in those moments where, you know, you're sitting around the room and someone asks any questions and you could roll tumbleweed through that room and you're actually sitting there with a burning question going on, but your head's got this dialogue of, Oh, will everyone think I'm dumb if I ask this question or, you know, what will people think? And um, for some people, it's a flush of the cheeks for other people. It's the butterflies in the stomach. We've got to learn to see when those moments of resistance show up. And it's in those moments, we've got to have the preparedness to sit there and say, okay, I feel that I'm acknowledging the fear and I'm going to choose to do it anyway. Um, and we can have little strategies around what we do in those moments or what we do in preparation for those moments to actually make it easier for us to cross that red line when it arises. And this is something, you know, say high-performance athletes do day in, day out, you know, and, and it's totally that, that difference between those that win at the Olympics and those that might finish 10th or 20th, even though they're all capable of winning. And I think, you know, when it comes to CEOs and leaders, there's so much they can learn from that being uncomfortable yeah. with the comfort, uh, sorry, being comfortable with the uncomfortable or facing their fears. So I think you've, you've brought to life some really good um, aspects that CEOs and leaders can take on. Are there any other aspects that you think that, you know, so maybe one or two things that CEOs and leaders don't do very well that could really take them to that next performance level? In general, not, not to do with the, you just mean more broadly, more broadly. Yes. It's a great question. I think, 
it's such an individualized thing. I, I, I think one of the things I've sort of conscious of is how important it is to just have self-awareness around um, relative to your goals and aspirations, how well the way that you're showing up, how well that you've structured your habits, your interactions, you know, is that serving the outcome you're trying to achieve? So I think having those people consciously around you, I mean, that's something I always look for in leaders I work with is um, what's the diversity of the people they have around them to go back to a point we touched on earlier, but from the point of view of people who can hold their feet to the fire and who can challenge them. So I have a lot, uh, I have a couple of mentors in particular who are my absolute tough love mentors and they continually um, will challenge me around, you know, why are you thinking like that? You know, if you're actually trying to achieve that, what's the game plan? How are you doing this, this and this? Um, and there's some really tough and bruising conversations that we've had over the years, but it's been exactly what I've needed to hear in order to kind of um, to, to, to burst through that next level of awareness or understanding or be challenged around lifting up to the next level in the same way a coach operates with an athlete, right? Like you've got to have someone that continually is giving you that performance feedback and saying, did you realize if you just shifted one increment to the left here, or if you did this just slightly differently, you could get that sort of gain. You could get this sort of different result. So I think being mindful of who have you got in your life? Some people have coaches, some people have got um, uh, performance psychologists. Uh, I'm talking business as much as sport here. Some people have got mentors. Some people have got, you know, a really great tribe of their peers or a peer or two that they catch up with regularly. But I think that is really, really important. And then the other thing I challenge um, leaders on is just thinking about what do you do for productive downtime? Uh, I think it's something that we are really bad at making uh, the space for in an age of busy. And I think one of my biggest game-changing moments in life was shifting from managing time to managing energy and understanding the importance of whatever productive downtime looks like for you. For some people, it's exercise. For some people, it's creative pursuits. For some people, it could just be deep quality time with your family. Um, but whatever it is, it's making sure that that's not something that sneaks into the diary if we've got a, you know, it available at between 11 p.m. and midnight on a Friday night after the working week is done, before the working week starts again on a Saturday morning, whatever it might be, it's actually critical that they're the building blocks around which your week is built. Um, and changing that structure for me probably five years ago now has been profound in terms of the, the, the level of energy I've got for life in general, the capacity, um, my ability to operate continually at a much higher threshold than I think I ever could have sustained before. Um, but I, I challenge them to think around that. Whatever productive downtime looks like for you, be mindful that you're managing energy, not just time. So a win for the day doesn't necessarily look like I smashed out 12 meetings between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. Um, it needs to be about energetically. How did you how did you use your energy to begin with relative to the goals and the things you need to do? But also how did you nourish it? How did you re-energize? How did you recharge? So you're showing up with that same level of capacity tomorrow or actually even challenging, extending that beyond the scope of what it is right now. So that would be my second big challenge. Yeah, that's a, it's a great approach. And, and it's one of our foundations of the active CEO where if you don't get that recovery right, then the energy balances out. And totally, you know, if you do this as an athlete, you don't perform when it comes to your competition. Now we see a lot of CEOs and leaders and people that work who will, who, who will just turn up to a meeting. They don't prepare, they don't plan, they don't get in the right frame of mind and they definitely don't really look at how much energy they got apart from having a cup of coffee maybe um, yeah. going into that meeting. And it, it, it's amazing how many meetings you go to and you just feel flat coming out because 
the person delivering it didn't bring any energy to what they're doing and probably weren't prepared as they should have been. Yeah, completely. And even, you know, you mentioned the coffee there. Even it amazes me uh, how poorly we often fuel uh, in our meetings. We get people together for an all-day board meeting and we feed them sugary muffins at 10.30 in the morning and uh, we expect that that's going to lead to optimal performance. Yep. Um, you know, it's it's just funny, some of the, thing, the things that we do that we haven't questioned because it's just kind of the way we've always done things or the way that the catering team always places their orders. And actually, if we brought a little bit more consciousness to that and the way that shows up and impacts optimal learning, optimal engagement, we'd get a different performance outcome. Yeah, you should never get to two or three in the afternoon and everyone's starting to fall asleep. Um, they should no, be still energized. not if we're doing it right. Exactly. So I've been fortunate not to have any coffee in my whole life. So I kind of find that I generally tend to have a fairly consistent energy all day, not because of that, but probably a few other things that I put into life, which, you know, sort of, it's quite profound when you watch other people who really drift off in that afternoon session. Oh, completely. So I understand you have quite an obsession with habits. You know, what habits allow <laughs> you to excel and lead a high-performing life? I uh, love that question. I absolutely do have an obsession with habits, which I think I revealed to everyone with this uh, blog I wrote at the start of the year, um, which uh, I, I might share with your audience in terms of the, um, the, the reading I did in the off-season, as I call it, over December and January uh, on a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear, which I thoroughly enjoyed Great book. and recommend. Um, but for me, the big thing with habits is that they can, you're continually, uh, the most important habit I think you can build is actually ironically to continually reflect on your habits. So I try and do this a couple of times a year where I sit back and go relative to what I'm working on now is the way that I'm showing up. Are the things that I'm repeatedly doing serving that outcome? Because we are the sum total of what we repeatedly do. We over index towards the, you know, the occasional performance lifts or the, the big ticket items, as opposed to, I think, putting the emphasis that we need to on the things that we do consistently, which are habits. So for me, it's about reflecting regularly and going, okay, what do I need to tweak and change? What do I need to commit to stopping? What do I need to rethink, maybe review? What is it I need to start doing that I haven't been doing or I haven't been doing enough of? So um, again, I, I don't think you can be prescriptive with that. For some people, that might be really well-being focused. Um, typically, it is at this time of year when we're often on the back of New Year's resolutions. So People are thinking about how they move more, how they drink more water, how they do a better job of giving their body the amount of sleep it needs. But it could be just as much, you know, little work habits that you want to commit to. You know, a lot of the CEOs I work with have trouble making time for on the business and they get too lost in the business. So it might be how are you making a commitment that once a fortnight you're blocking out an afternoon a week and that's your time for strategic thinking. It might be the time you take yourself somewhere completely different for creative inspiration but it's the time that you are absolutely ring fencing so that you've got time to, to, to think on things because it's going to drive that next round of business development, the next stage of growth, whatever that looks like. So for me, it would be about reflecting on what you're doing right now, whether that's getting you the results that you want and what sort of tweaks and changes you could experiment with that might help you get to that next level. And talking about that next level, you know, we look at, say, athletes, they spend 95% of their time preparing to race and 5% of the time doing their race. Whereas in the business world, we are 95% of the time doing the race and trying to earn a living or, or produce the yeah. product, but we only spend 5% of the time planning. So I'd like to see some people start to, to increase that percentage where they're actually spending time on habits that actually help them perform more effectively. And, you know, as you say, it only takes a small amount of time. It's, it's a small little things along the way that build up to a, a greater transformation later on. You have a lifelong love of learning. You know, it seems to be deep in your heart and you focus on 
learning from a lifetime of experience on the Coffee Pods podcast. What was the catalyst behind the Coffee Pods? Um, a couple of things. I mean, the, the notion of kind of that idea of learning from a, a lifetime of experience comes from a really good mentor of mine, uh, Virgil, who's always said this great line to me, you know, how long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. And I always thought, oh, you know, that's, that's genius because it makes, you know, it sounds so simple and so straightforward and it is. And that's the, the power of it. I think so many times we put barriers between ourselves and other people or we think we've got to be in certain formal structured environments to be able to learn. And, you know, for me, when I first heard that line at 18, 19, it really cracked open this idea that actually learning was on me. Like at any point I could be going out and connecting um, with people in the community, with people in business, with people in all walks of different life and seeking to learn and understand from how they've managed to do what they've done. So that was really the impetus for what started my own lifelong journey or the approach that I, I took with regards to making a real habit out of going and doing that regularly. And I still absolutely do to this day. And I encourage, you know, all of the um, people that I talk to to make a habit of doing the same. But then for me, I think it was sort of reflecting on how do we make that easier for people? Because I still meet so many people who I can tell are a little bit afraid of taking that first step. You know, how do we give them access to the sort of learning and as well, I acknowledge I'm incredibly fortunate to be in some of the rooms and have relationships with some of the people that I've got relationships with. And so for me, it was wanting to try and crack open those conversations and actually share them with a broader audience so that anyone that had a hunger to improve themselves and learn could go and get these resources kind of freely available um, as long as they've got an internet connection or a phone you know, connection to the internet. You know, So that was really the, the want was to open up a free resource library so that Anyone who wanted to go on the journey of driving change could find a whole archive of really diverse people who are sharing their insights and their knowledge. And one thing I love about my guests is their preparedness to be really honest and vulnerable and pragmatic. So there's some great lessons. There's some real hard truths, you name it, in these stories and the way that these people tell them that I think are really powerful lessons um, for those who are eager to think about the way that they drive change in the world. It's very generous of you. And obviously for our listeners, can you just explain a little bit around how you go about selecting the people that come onto your podcast? Yeah. So, it, you know, it's funny you asked the question because we've just been locking in um, our 2019 guests as we speak. A couple of things. I mean, obviously the heartbeat of the podcast has changed. So we're the, the, the first qualifying factor is it needs to be a, um, a leader, a rebel with a cause, uh, someone who's trying to change something. That could be changing hearts and minds. That could be changing organisations. That could be shifting communities. Um, it can be on all sorts of scales. You know, we've had everything from ASX 10 CEOs and fastest growing company entrepreneurs right the way through to some phenomenal grassroots community leaders, some world champions uh, and, you know, Olympic gold medalists and the like who are all marching to the beat of their own drum. And that sort of Criteria number one is sort of let's let's find someone who's got a really interesting take on the world, a really different way of showing up where there's going to be great lessons and nuggets. The second thing for me is uh, it's important that they're able to convey a message and tell a story. And um, Podcasts are obviously a, an entirely audio medium. Um, and so it's really important that they can be a communicator who can convey their ideas. Uh, and the third thing, um, and this is a really, really important one for me, and I think it's part of why um, the podcast has been as well received as it has done. And that's part of what's really kicked me into gear is getting stopped five times at airports and at the football over the weekend um, with people asking me, when's the next season coming out? So I've really been kicked into gear. It was quite hilarious. Uh, but the I think the thing is really that we pick people who 
I prepare to be really honest and vulnerable and real. I don't want people that are going to come on and give people contrived sound bites. Uh, we've all met those people. I don't think those little nuggets of success are that helpful. You need people who are prepared to share generously themselves and do it in kind of a candid and open and honest way um, in order that people can can truly relate, but also that they can find the lesson. And so the other really important thing for me is that from a value standpoint, they resonate with that and they're comfortable doing it. I would never want to make anyone uncomfortable or ask them to do anything they don't want to do. But that's certainly one of the criteria that I'm looking for in the in the guests that we have on the show. I know for me, I really enjoy your show and, and you ask really, really good questions, which, um, you know, sort of positions uh, the platform for the people to be vulnerable and be quite genuine in, in what they say and, and what they bring to the story. So well I done. I appreciate you saying that and I appreciate you listening. <laughs> um, so obviously talking about influential people that open up and are very genuine. Obviously, we've had a very tragic events in Christchurch in New Zealand recently. Oh, it's been devastating. Extremely devastating. I'm still very numb, I think, in, I bet. in, in thinking about it. The New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is arguably probably one of the best leaders in the world right now. What sort of aspects of her leadership do you see allow her, or sorry, allow her to be such a compelling leader that people really connect with? It's a great question. And can I just say, full stop, I love your Prime Minister. And I really hope to have the, the pleasure of meeting her and hopefully working with her one day because I think she is an extraordinary example of a next generation leader. And I don't mean that necessarily even in her age, though I know she is younger than most of the world leader cohort. I mean it in terms of the way that she she thinks, the way that she communicates, the way that she approaches ideas and just the, the lens that she has on the world. Um, and I think, for me, the overwhelming thing that has shone through, and it's so beautiful to see and it's so encouraging to see, is empathy. Like, the way that she has handled the response, um, the way that she has lent into making sure people first, community first, um, just coming with a real heart-based approach, um, just I, I've been truly um, astounded is, is a terrible thing to say in some ways because we shouldn't be so surprised to see that out of our political leaders. But I just think the compassion that she's demonstrated, the empathy, the way that she's put her arms around the community, I think has been really, really wonderful to see. Um, and I think at the same time, she's been really um, firm uh, on her messaging. I think it's great that she's come out straight away and talked gun control. I think it was great that she decided, I shall never speak the shooter's name. That man deserves never to have the recognition that he was, was evidently part of the motivation here. So I think at the same time, she's she's shown this brilliant fusion between heart and head. And I've loved getting to see an example. You know, it's unfortunate that such tragic circumstances are the reason it's precipitated. But to see her step up and, and deliver what I think, um, you know, New Zealand needed in so many facets has been um, really, really inspirational. And I think she really controlled the narrative really well, not just from New Zealand sense, but also a global sense in that, the words that we say have such a powerful influence on the direction Absolutely. everyone takes. And it's been phenomenal to see the outreach and the support and, and the thoughts that are coming from all around the world. Completely. And, you know, and we have conversations about it almost every day in Australia. I mean, as much as we joke about our sporting rivalry on field, there's such a strong affinity between Australians and New Zealanders. Some, In fact, a whole chunk of my closest friends and mentors are New Zealanders. And you, you just... 
I just wanted to be able to wrap my arms around the whole country. It was, uh, you know, truly devastating. And Christchurch, I mean, I've had the privilege of working in Christchurch quite a bit over the last few years, a community that had already been through so much with everything that had happened with the earthquake, more resilient than a community should have to be. And then, you know, thrown this most recent devastating challenge um, you know, it, it's just, I, I can't tell you uh, the, the amount of outpouring of love and just goodwill and thoughts that are coming away. In fact, even I was in Sydney yesterday visiting the, um, the Lord Mayor's office and there was a, a book of um, write your notes for Christchurch. And I was just flipping through these pages and added my own comment that of thousands and thousands of just everyday Sydney siders here that have been writing their their notes um, just to send their goodwill and prayers to, to New Zealand. And I thought even that that little moment, I just, I hope that people know um, how much they're in our hearts right now. Yeah, well, you know, thank you on behalf of, I suppose, New Zealand on, on, on for people sort of supporting us in that sense. And um, I think New Zealand are at their strongest when they've got their backs against the wall and they you know, as you say, they're very resilient and they stand up and mm. especially those people from Christchurch have been through a lot recently. They really have. So moving on, we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. <laughs> when was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh my gosh, all the time. I love that question. I try and make a habit of that. In fact, it's actually one of the things that I have to check off um, every day, it's my oh, a habit I'm focusing on this year. So every day in my little habit app, I've got, you know, did you do something new today? I've actually changed it. It's funny you asked this question today because I changed it yesterday to um, do one thing you're afraid of. Because I was finding um, I wanted to be a bit more intentional about the direction that I had and I wanted to be pushing myself outside of my comfort zone as opposed to just necessarily collecting a new experience. Um, but for me, that's that's an all-the-time thing. And, and in some ways it's more public like I um I try and find excuses really regularly to do um creative uh activities and exercises so to take myself off and do parkour or to sign myself up for um a drawing course or things that are really outside of my wheelhouse and very outside of my comfort zone um but where I believe there'll be learning opportunities and then other times for me it's about um taking what might look like an old moment like something I've done 20 30 50 100 times over and finding a way to make it new. So how do I show up in this room today that's different to the way that I ever showed up before? You know, how when I take the stage today, is it different to the way that I've ever taken the stage? What can I try? What can I experiment with um, in order to give something new a go? So for me, that's a really um, routine thing. And, and sometimes as well, it's prompted by intentionally putting myself in circumstances with new people, which forces new conversation, new reflection, um, those sorts of things. That's probably a big theme of this week. I've been taking a lot of meetings that have taken me well outside of the territory I'm familiar with. Um, and it's been great because I'm, I'm challenged to think about the application of my skills in a new environment. I've learned a lot about a context and a whole bunch of situations I didn't really understand. So um, I can't encourage people enough not just to take that notion as kind of a, oh, yeah, that's a good idea to kind of engage with once every little while, but actually think about how do you build a habit of making um, that idea part of your life because the, the difference between doing it once and doing it repeatedly is market. I love that constant evolution of Holly Ransom. Uh, it's very, very <laughs> Trying. <beautiful. laughs> Don't ever want to be complacent. So what is the one question that you would love to solve? Oh, a question I would love to solve. Interesting. 
I think when I, well, one I spend a lot of time thinking about right now is how do we prepare the not just the next generation in terms of generation currently in our schools, but the next generation in terms of those that will be in our societies and economies for the future of work. I mean, I work a lot at the intersection of um, technology and policy. And, you know, we know that uh, technology is increasingly taking over and playing a, a massively significant role in our businesses and in the economy. And part of well, so much of my background work is around skilling, jobs, I mean, uh, youth unemployment and the education system. And so if I could solve for a question, and I think everyone is trying to work this out to varying degrees of success right around the world right now, it would be how can we minimise the kind of structural uh, unemployment and the economic pain that's going to come as we readjust to this fourth wave of the industrial revolution and how can we support people to um, unlearn, learn, relearn as effectively as possible in order that they can support themselves, support their family and be a part of um, the future of where our economies and our society is going. So that would probably be the one that's very top of mind for me right now. Who has left the greatest impression and had the most impact on your career and why? Hmm. Oh my gosh, so many people. I feel actually awkward about singling one person out here. Um, I'm going to say two um, that, have, that have really personally had an impact on me. I think it would be um, Lane Beachley and Jan Owen. I think Lane is uh, probably the, the source of more of the uncomfortable conversations I've had in my life than anyone else. She is great at holding a mirror up to you and challenging you in a really caring, compassionate manner. Um, and I am so grateful for her mentorship, her friendship, the way that she's pushed me and the way that she's believed in me since we first met probably six, seven years ago now. Um, I've had the privilege of serving on the board of her foundation I am so inspired by her each and every day and uh, the dynamic of our friendship and her mentorship. I wouldn't be where I am today um, if it weren't for the role that she plays in my life. And I'm deeply grateful for her. And the other one would be Jan Owen, uh, who is um, obviously people I assume I know Lane, eight-time world chef, surfing champion. I probably should have said that. Um, so took up her eighth world title last year, which was amazing to watch. Uh, and then Jan Owen is the CEO of the Foundation for Young Australians. I think Jan is truly one of the most extraordinary um, leaders of change that I've met. And one of the things I love about Jan is this incredible fusion that she is between head and heart. She's one of the most compassionate, caring leaders you've ever met. She's got two feet in the issues and the communities that she's serving. I often have described her as saying young, young Australians could not have had a greater gift than the day that she got appointed to lead that organization because we just got the best advocate possible uh, for young Australians in that role and have done for the last nine, 10 years that Jan's been there. Um, but she's also this brilliant strategist. She understands issues. She understands advocacy and influence. Um, you know, she was named in 2012 Australia's most influential woman. Um, and so there's so much about how Jan goes about um, uh, operating and and connecting and, and just honestly how she does everything that I really admire. And I'm so blessed to have such an incredibly close relationship. She's backed me in well before I believed in myself um, and always believed in me and always been there when I've needed advice, support, a hug, you name it. So I think without a doubt those two women would be um, the two that I, I am particularly grateful for and have had an extraordinary impact on my life. 
Yeah, so very fortunate there to have such powerful, um, com- compassionate and, you know, driven people that sit behind you and, and help support the direction of where you're going. Oh, it makes all the difference, you know, absolutely. And I've been navigating something massive, you know, of, of late and, and being able to pick up the phone and, and call these people and say, what do you think and what's the right way to go about doing this and, and soundboard off people like that and come away from a conversation going, okay, cool, I'm clear. I'm comfortable. This is the way forward. It, it changes the game. And, and that's why I talk so often about the importance of building those support networks around you. I mean, um, Craig, even from a triathlon standpoint, it was sort of one of the first moments where um, it gelled for me was sort of thinking how funny because triathlon in so many ways, people associate as being an entirely individual sport. And one of the things that you'll be overwhelmed by when you get involved in, particularly if you have that mentality, um, we, is the need for the, the support crew. Yeah. I mean, some people might be able to do it, but I think it's a very rare triathlete that ever crosses a finish line without the support of an army of people around them. You know, coaches, trainers, strength and conditioning, um, you know, family, friends, the person who's helped them drive their bike down to the start line, the person who's cheered them on at the 23rd kilometre when all they could hear was give up, give up, give up in their head and all of a sudden, you know, someone managed to flick the switch and they kept going for that little bit longer and got it done. Um, so for me, that importance of, making sure you, you take that notion and apply it to life. And if you don't have those people currently in your world, how can you build a relationship with them that will allow you to kind of be able to um, have the support and encouragement at those moments where you're going to need it? Now, I could keep speaking with you all day, and I, and I love you know the great insights that you're sharing, So, and I'm sure other people will as well. So how can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you? Well, thank you for the opportunity to, to talk to your audience to begin with. Um, I'd love to stay in touch. You can find me. I'm very responsive on uh, LinkedIn and Instagram. I used to be a massive tweeter. I'm not anymore. I think Twitter's got too nasty, so I've kind of quit Twitter this year. Um, so if you come find me on, on LinkedIn or on Instagram, you can find me at um, www.hollyransom.com or emergent.global. Um, and you can find my podcast, uh, Coffee Pods with Holly, on iTunes or on Stitcher or at emergent.global forward slash listen. Holly, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I have really enjoyed listening to your journey as you've gone from, you know, being that young girl that's uh, being very curious at school and, and asking the person on the side of the street, you know, how much money they had in their hat to um, getting, getting into the corporate world at quite a young age and really excelling as a leader um, obviously transferring into being the youth leader at the g20 summit in 2014 your curious and thought-provoking mind that is always looking for new ideas and challenging yourself to become better um, through many many ways uh, including 365 days of challenging affair um, to now you know obviously all the work that you do with a number of leaders, companies, um, CEOs from all around the world and your your passion to change the world for the better and really, really make a, a big difference in people's lives. So Holly, thank you very, very much for coming on the show and we look forward to seeing where your journey continues in the future and staying in touch. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This week's Active CEO Wellness Tip is habit reflection. As CEOs and leaders, we need to be aware of our habits and know that the best habit is to reflect on your habits. 
you need to allocate some time. It might be two, three, or even four times per year where you find that space to reflect on your habits and determine which habits you need to tweak slightly, which habits you need to commit to stop doing, those habits that you may need to rethink and amend slightly so you can be more effective with them, and those habits that you might do sometimes but need to start doing more often. For you, you need to ensure that you're in that performance state of mind where you're delivering peak performance as often as possible. And those habits that we put every single day in those routines are what set us up for optimal learning, optimal teaching, optimal teamwork, and in the end, optimal performance. So it comes down to what you are doing every single day. And it's important that you turn up, you show up, and you're there delivering your best effort in those habits, and then you will really shine through for yourself when you're performing, for those that you're performing to, and the team around you. Most importantly, you need to be performing at your best to inspire, motivate, and catalyze the way they think and the things that they do so you can deliver absolute performance every single day. That podcast today with Holly Ransom was definitely one of my favorites. You know, we started off, we talked about her her life growing up and the lessons she learned from both her her curiosity and that, that whole stranger danger talk by her mum where she wanted to figure out why do I have a roof over my head and food to eat when the people around me may not always have that. I really like the description she had from her grandma that 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 awesome inspiration of if you walk past it you tell the world is okay holly is someone that really tries to challenge the status quo and inspire people to be different and stand up and ensure that the future generation have a better life than what we currently live i like that she likes to seek first to understand before you seek to be understood she has amazing opportunities where she has stood up there in front of thousands of people both as a speaker and someone that is driving conversations with some of the world's great leaders like Richard Branson, Barack Obama and you know say the Dalai Lama. I really enjoyed that section where she talked about talking with Stephen Moore and challenged her way on the thinking around mentoring each day and you know his disbelief that the way the leaders of the business world are failing to consider themselves as leaders as equivalent as high performing athletes you know as athletes they are very very conscious of fueling their body right getting the right amount of sleep having productive downtime and ensuring that their body is in peak performance state so that they can deliver peak performance in the workplace um, she she went on to discuss you know, her 365 days of fear. I love that. It was fantastic. She was challenging herself to, to learn, grow, develop every single day and be more confident. She had such an influence at the G20 Summit, of the Youth G20 Summit in 2014. And she really took the bull by the horn, so to speak, and was driving you know, those discussions around how can we build a better future. We've talked about uh, that going from working for someone to quitting her job and starting her own 
uh, business emergent. Um, she, she talked about the challenges of signing up for an Ironman 100 days out from the event, which is a huge challenge. She really endeared us with her, the impact that her mentors, such as Lane Beachley, have had on her life. And we, we got an insight into the way she um, thought about the tragic events that have happened in New Zealand and the way that the, the amazing Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, responded to that. It, that empathy that she shows that sometimes may be lacking from our leaders around the world. She, she continues to strive to be better every single day. And I think you can take some huge lessons out of this conversation this is the active CEO where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.